Hello, everybody. It is Erica and Rachel, and you are listening to Story Crime Podcast. Happy anniversary, Rachel. It's oh been my gosh. a whole year, a whole year and one week, actually, by the time this comes out, because we ended up taking our one year anniversary off last week. Oh, well. Ah, well. Happy <laughs> anniversary, Erica. I can't believe we've been doing this for a whole year. I know. I have never stuck with anything for so long. <laughs> Well, I think really early on when we had done it six weeks in a row, I said my gym membership would be so proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> my gym membership now forgets I even existed. It's it's jealous of this podcast. <laughs> well, I'm glad you've had the passion to stick to it. Yeah. And you've provided us with some amazing stories over the years. So thank you for all of that. Well, and um, I came up with a new slogan for this year because for some reason I can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> and my episodes are very long, including the one we're going to be doing today. And my new slogan for this year is, Dre's got the beats, Erica's got the deets. <laughs> which, Rob, which Rob said, my husband Rob said that that was too dorky and nobody cares about Dr. Dre or beats by Dr. Dre anymore. And nobody says deets. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually quite enjoy it. So it sticks with me. <laughs> I like it and I don't care. Uh, and I'm old, so I'm allowed to have outdated slogans for myself. Yes. <laughs> um, before you trail off into the start of the episode, I want to ask what everyone else is also wondering. How was Colin Mockery? It was a delight. It was a sheer delight. Um, he's a treasure, a treasure, yes. <laughs> a Canadian treasure. Um, so funny. I because the the whole show it was called Hip Prov, so it was like a hypnosis slash improv show. Oh. And what they did was they brought um, audience volunteers up, twenty of them to start, and then they whittled it down to four. I did go up, but like I cannot. Keep I, I think I'm just not susceptible <laughs> to the hypnosis. I sort well, of your heart was probably beating too fast just seeing your crush. Yeah. So um yeah. I was <laughs> in it for a bit and then something happened and I just remember like sitting straight up. And like I remember everything because at one point he told me I couldn't find my belly button and I was like, <laughs> I, I don't know why I need it but I, I can't find it. And I remember doing all of that and I couldn't remember, like I just didn't know why I was doing it. But then something happened and I like zipped right out of it. And I was like, hold on a second. I don't want to be up here. I need to go back to my mom and dad. So <laughs> get me off the stage. Yeah. That's cool that you went on stage. Yeah. Cause that's not usually me either, but like mm. I wanted to meet him. I didn't get to, but oh my God, I was so close to him that I was like dead. Like I, <laughs> I could have reached out. Oh, I'm not kidding. And when he came out on stage uh, at the very, very beginning, I literally was in tears. Uh, I looked at my mom and my mom was like, what is, what is the matter with you? And I was like, I'm so happy. <laughs> oh, I love just, that for you. My mom was just like, oh, my God, like he's older than your father. You need to stop. <laughs> 
<laughs> so now I've met Mark McKinney and I've seen Colin Mockery live. I just got to get my hands on John Lithgow. Guys, if yeah. anybody has any leads, connections, <laughs> something, like, let's throw it out there. Oh, and Mr. Bean. He was added to the list recently. So. That's right. And I guess you can never really meet Homer Simpson, so... I mean, I technically kind of have because I did have my picture taken with him at Universal Studios in <laughs> that Florida. That counts. That counts. <laughs> I'm going to count it because that's probably about as close as Stupid Bart yeah. was in the picture too, but you know. Whatever. Bart has to ruin everything. Yeah. Um, you know how you're going to Vegas to go see Lovers and Friends? Yes. Okay. So if I had all the money in the world, Rachel, I just found what my concert would be. Oh and it is God. and it is going to Vegas in October. It's called the When We Were Young Festival. And I should send you a list of the lineup because I'm yeah. not shitting you. I'm it's Google it right now. Blink one eighty two, Green Day, oh, No Effects. You did send uh, that to me. MXPX, a newfound glory, uh God, a simple plan, Finch. Just the Ataris, like so I can't even name them all. There were so many on that mm-hmm. list that I was like, 16-year-old Erica is about to shit herself. <laughs> <laughs> that looked like I used to have this like book of CDs. Yeah. That was my book of CDs, was everybody yeah. on this list. I get it. Ugh. How much are tickets? Why don't you go? Oh my I'll god, go they're Vegas like with you. They're like four four hundred bucks a ticket. Like there's that's for nothing. The, oh for you. No, for the amount of Miss artists. Penny right? Packer. <laughs> no, Mr. I mean for the money bags. <laughs> if you were to see all of those artists independently. Yeah, true. No, it's nothing. But I just can't. I can't go in October anyways because of school. But um, oh my gosh. I was thinking because when you were telling me, I I remember thinking like, I don't think there's any show that like I would be that desperate to see. And then that popped up and I was like. OMG. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I just found it. <laughs> yeah. There it is. You manifested it. It was yeah. like, oh, yeah? Well, here you go. Yeah. Exactly. So we'll see. One day, if that show ever happens again, which it probably never will. That's what I thought life. about Lovers and Friends last year. And look, it's back. So you never know. Depends how well it goes. True. Well, hopefully. So maybe if, if it goes well this year, they'll come back again in 2024. And then I can yeah. save up and I can go. There you go. Start saving uh, now. <laughs> all right. Well, we have a really long episode today, guys. And if um, you know anything about true crime and you're a fan of true crime, you might know this one. It's, I mean, relatively popular. We're going to be talking about the Miranda murders, I guess, oh. is one of the things it's called. Um, but it is the case of Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. And again, like I said, it's it's a relatively well-known case, but I noticed that it wasn't really covered a lot. And when it was covered, it wasn't really covered in depth the way that in I'm three going to episode <laughs> in the way that I'm going to cover it uh, for these next three episodes. So <laughs> right off the bat, I just want to let everyone know that the sources that I used for the these episodes are two books specifically. Um, one of them is called Die for Me by Don Lasseter. It's a little bit of an older book. It came out closer to the time that this kind of all went down. We're sort of like after the trial and all of that. And the second one was is called No Kill, No Thrill by Darcy Henton and Greg Owens. And what I like about the second source is that because some of this case takes place actually in Canada, it's really written more from the perspective of Canadian law enforcement than it is Ooh. from the perspective of the American side of things. 
So it was kind of interesting. Um, and I think I was telling you, Rachel, that this case, we start in San Francisco, California. I think we go to Hong Kong at one point, and then we go all the way to, you know, Michigan and then cross the border to Canada. We end up in Chatham, which was really, really close to where we, me and Rachel grew up and went to high school. Mm-hmm. So in Chatham, Ontario, and then we go through to Toronto and all the way out to Calgary. So just crazy. So much. Quite the journey. Yeah. So it's a really interesting case, but it, it's, I wanted to give as much detail as I could because like I said, I feel like it hasn't really been covered that way. And Leonard Lake and Charles Zhang are two very interesting crazy wild people that somehow managed to come together and Mm. you know chaos and rampage and craziness ensued so i want to give a lot of insight to them which is what today's episode is going to be more about and then next week we're going to talk a lot about the miranda project and uh, the victims involved in that and try to cover them more in depth as well and then the trial of course at the end so Bear with me. I know it's going to be a lot. I know that multiple multi-part episodes aren't for everyone, but. But Erica's got the deal. Yeah, I just really, (laughs) I've come to the conclusion that I don't like cutting things out. And the sources I use, the people that I'm sourcing, they put a lot of work and, and effort into their research. And I want to not only give them credit, but like share what they've sort of done. So it's important to me not to leave out, you know, those little details. There's a few little things I left in here just because I was like, well, that's an interesting detail that they included. I'm going to keep that because Mm. why not? Yeah. So without further ado, I think we should get right into this because it is going to be a long one tonight. Um, So let's talk about Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. All right. Let's do it. We're going to start somewhere kind of near the end, middle, middle end, and then we're going to jump back to the beginning. Sure. Why not? Uh, Okay. So on June 2nd, 1985, off-duty San Francisco police officer John Callis entered a lumberyard supply store. As he did, he noticed a short Chinese man wearing a heavy parka and carrying a large vice, quickly heading towards the front of the store. He was expecting him to head towards the cash register, as one would in a store Mm -hmm. (laughs) when somebody's carrying a piece of merchandise. However, he didn't. He instead saw that this man was beelining it for the front of the, like, the front door to head out to the parking lot. So, Callis, the police officer, he was kind of curious about what he was witnessing there. So, he went to a sales clerk and he said, you know, did you just sell a vice to (laughs) that guy in the parking lot? And the sales (laughs) clerk was like, no, I don't believe we've sold a vice today at all. And he said, oh, well... If no one sold one of those things, then you are certainly getting ripped off right now, my my dear sir. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm off duty, though, so check you later. <laughs> check you later. Deuces. Catless <laughs> uh, and the store cr- clerk quickly headed out to the parking lot where they saw the man standing near a copper-colored Honda Prelude. As they started to approach him, he slammed the passenger side door and got the hell out of there. He mm-hmm. straight up power walked. It is the 80s peak power walk time (laughs) straight towards the closest intersection, clearly trying to avoid Callis and the store clerk. Now he called out to the man, uh, uh, officer Callis, he called out to the man, uh, but he ignored them. He acted like he wasn't hearing anything and he soon Mm. vanished out of sight into the city streets. Now Callis began peering into the windows of the Honda 
that the man was standing near hoping to catch a glimpse of the stolen vice, but wasn't able to spot it. Sorry, so confused about what he could have done with such a large piece of equipment. He did kind of a walk around to inspect just to see if maybe he just dropped it on the ground or or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then he noticed that the truck was slightly ajar. So he opened it and took a look inside and shocking. They immediately saw the table vice because I'm sure it's not small. No, it's gotta be. And like big chunk of metal. Callis and the store clerk headed back into the store to call the police because even though Officer Callis was there, he was off duty. So he wanted Mm -hmm. some backup. And as they did, a bearded, balding man approached them. The man started to explain that the other man was his friend and this had all been a huge misunderstanding. He paid for the vice. He presented a receipt and he said, like, let's just not worry about this. Let's move on. Now, at 1.15 p.m., just minutes after Officer Callis had placed his call to the police office, like the police, Officer Dan Wright arrived at the scene of the lumber store, and he pulled his car up behind the Honda Prelude and did a quick license plate check. The plate came back registered to a man named Lonnie Bond. Curiously, though, this plate that was registered to Lonnie Bond should have been attached to a Buick, not a Honda. Uh-oh. That's red flag number one, that something is strange here. Mm -hmm. Now, since the trunk was still open, Officer Wright began inspecting its contents. He spotted the vice first, of course, and then close by, he noticed a black backpack. He picked it up and noticed that it was pretty heavy, so he opened it up and saw that it contained a twenty-two caliber Ruger handgun. Oh. And it was equipped with what appeared to be an illegal silencer. Oh, not cool. He located the serial number and he like went back to his car, did a quick search and he saw that the gun was registered to an R Scott Stapley and had recently been purchased in San Diego. Red flag number two, they've got a car, a license plate to Lonnie Bond on the wrong car and a gun registered to Robin Scott Stapley. Yeah. As Wright continued to inspect the vehicle and its contents, the bald man approached and again started explaining that he had paid for what his friend had stolen and that he didn't think there was any reason to push the issue forward. Let's, you know, let's just carry on with the day. Forget this ever happened. But uh, Wright asked what the man's name was and he said, oh, my name's Stapley. And then he asked whose car this was and he told him this car belongs to Lonnie Bond. Now, he inquired about the whereabouts of Lonnie Bond, but the man seemed to have an answer for everything. He said that uh, Bond was up north. He didn't have a phone. Can't get a hold of him. But this is his car. I have permission to drive it. Okay. He asked permission to do a more thorough check of the Honda, to which the man agreed. When presented with the illegal silencer, Wright informed the man calling, who was still calling himself Stapley, mm-hmm. that he was under arrest because of the gun. Now, the Honda would be towed to an impound, impound lot where Officer Wright conducted a more thorough search of the vehicle. Inside, they found a variety of items, including photographs of Lonnie Bond and his family, as well as a stun gun. And when they ran the VIN number of the car, they found that it was related to a missing person by the name of Paul Cosner from San Francisco, a.k.a. red flag number three. Yeah, <laughs> three major red flags. And Paul Cosner had actually been missing for about nine months at this point. Oh, shit. With their suspicions mounting and evidence piling up, experienced interrogator and detective Gary Hopper was brought in to question this suspect. He informed him that things were looking pretty fishy here. You know, why was he driving the car of a man who had been missing for nine months and using the license plates of another man who had been presumed missing now? Because they could not locate Lonnie Bond or the rest of his family. The man in custody, with kind of a look at defeat, would reveal his true identity to Detective Hopper at this point. He told him his name was Leonard Lake. 
He would also give up the name of the man who had stolen the vice from the hardware hardware store, which was his accomplice, Charles Ng. He's like, I'm not going down alone. Here he is. Yeah. And he said, you've got to find this guy. His name's Charles Ng. I'll tell you everything. But this case was more than just a simple shoplifting or illegal weapons case or a stolen car or whatever. And Lake said that he was willing to start talking. But first, he asked investigators if he could have a piece of paper and a pen. And he also needed a glass of water, he told them. Hmm. While investigators had stepped out of the room for a moment, Lake wrote the following note. Dear Lynn, I love you. I forgive you. Freedom is better than all else. Tell Janet, tell Janet I'm sorry. Mom, Patty, and all, I'm sorry for all the trouble. Love, Leonard. Hmm. Leonard folded the paper and put it in his shirt. He then pulled out a cyanide pill that he had carefully oh. concealed, sewn into the collar of his shirt, and gulped it down with the glass with the water that he had requested earlier. Damn, he was prepared. When Detective Hopper entered the interrogation room, he found his suspect suspect writhing and convulsing on the floor. Lake was taken to the hospital and admitted to the ICU and put on life support. Unfortunately, just four days later, Leonard Lake would be dead, wow. leaving investigators with even more questions than answers. Wow. So he didn't even give them the courtesy to confess first. No. Like, at he least did give, give them the details. They He did give him Charles Ng's name. <laughs> sure, but at least, you know, spill the tea, sis, then kill yourself. Yeah. Little did they know that whatever the hell was going on here, this was just the beginning of a 13-year-long investigation into the disappearance and murders of upwards of what they suspect is 25 people with some as young as 16 months of old. Okay, hold on. That's a lot to unpack there. 17-year investigation? 13 years. 13-year-long Oh. investigation trial at the end it would be end up being 13 years at the end of all that's this. wild 16 months old yes so that's a baby fucked. this case would also take them on a hunt for a fugitive that would span like i said from san francisco to michigan and across the border to canada where charles Zhang would even make a brief stay in chatham like i said earlier before heading toronto and then the great canadian prairies of alberta wowzers but, of course, before we get there, I have to introduce you to the two main cans of crushed assholes, also known <laughs> as Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. That's a new one. <laughs> In part one of this series, we'll be taking a deep dive into their upbringings, how these two trash pandas met, and the carefully crafted plans they created to abduct, torture, and keep captive what they described as off-the-shelf sex slaves, or M-girls. Ew. Strap in and prepare yourself. This is going to be a very long, disturbing ride oh, into good. the mind of an absolute psychopath and his easily manipulated friend who was all too willing to go along with the crazy plans or operations, as Leonard Light calls them. So, yeah. Okay. Let me get comfortable. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we're going to start first by talking about Leonard Lake. So Leonard Thomas Lake was born on October 29th, 1945, to parents Elgin and Gloria in San Francisco, California. During the first five years of young Leonard's life, his parents fought constantly, and his father would become an alcoholic. Mm. After the birth of their third child, Leonard's younger brother, Donald, Elgin would abandon his young family, leaving Gloria to raise their three children completely on her own. Shit. 
Times were extremely tough for the family at during this time, with Gloria being able to barely afford the bare necessities that her children needed, like food, shelter, clothes, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. adequate medical care, etc. As times got harder and harder for Gloria, she would make the decision that it would be better for herself and her children if she tried to patch things up with her husband, Elgin. So she decided to pack up and move to Seattle where she could reconcile with her estranged husband. Okay. However, Leonard had just started kindergarten at this point and not wanting to disrupt his education, which, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I We know I work in kindergarten. Are you, What are you disrupting? Yeah. But, but whatever. Gloria decided that it would be best to leave Leonard behind in San Francisco with his grandparents. It's stated in the book Die for Me by Don Lasseter that this was an extremely traumatic separation for Leonard. And when his mother was getting ready to board the train to Seattle with his two younger siblings, Leonard would cling to her leg and beg her to take him with her. Oh, my God. According to Gloria, she had already only booked seats for herself and the other children. So there was no other choice but to leave this poor, crying, devastated five-year-old behind. Oh. Even though the original plan was that Leonard would eventually rejoin the rest of his family, he would actually never live with either of his parents again after this, even though his mother would return with his siblings later that year. Leonard's relationship with his mother was never the same after this. His mother would would remarry in 1956 and asked Leonard to rejoin the family, but even then he refused. He wanted to stay with his grandparents. Hmm. So his mother would... Trust now. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, his mother would end up having two more daughters with her new husband. And although Leonard interacted with them in a friendly manner as they grew up, he wasn't particularly close with any of them. Okay. Even though Leonard's grandparents weren't particularly wealthy by any stretch, they seemed to offer him a life of stability that he hadn't known while living with his mother, which is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, there was always food on the table he had his own toys his own bedroom he was given an allowance he was even given the opportunity to attend summer camps where he enjoyed hiking in the mountains swimming in lakes and by all accounts life for leonard growing up with his grandparents seemed pretty good i know that being separated from your parents and your siblings that can be traumatic but leonard did have it good i can't judge how he had a great childhood right and i can't judge how you know that separation affected him i don't know how that that i guess that's something that would affect everyone differently but it does sound like his grandparents loved him cared took really good care of him so you know now leonard's younger cousin chester said that he really enjoyed spending time with leonard they were eight years apart so chester was quite young um, but Leonard was really kind to him and, you know, took care of him and played with him when he came over to when whenever Chester came over to his grandparents' house. And he said he would go over to the house and Leonard would show him different science experiments that he would do in his bedroom using a chemistry set. <laughs> That's so 50s sounding. Yeah. <laughs> One of his favorite experiments was using acid to dissolve just <laughs> a variety of things. No problem. Here's the thing of acid in your chemistry set. The, the box says eight plus. <laughs> no, here's the thing. And we talked about this in the Jeffrey Dahmer episode. Where are people getting acid from? Like, have you ever walked into a store and was like, I'll take some muriatic acid, please? Well, but that's what it probably came in this little chemistry set that was sold to children. Just like the lawn darts were actual darts <laughs> that you threw at each other. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, you know, the 50s were a different time. Yeah, I, I suppose you're right. I suppose you're right. They're painting with lead-based paint now. <laughs> like, it's a different time. 
So Leonard was also really into his pet mice. He had a, a slew of them. It started out with just like one or two. And then as mice do multiply, I they don't did. like where this is going with the acid <laughs> and now the mice. I am terrified. Now, Leonard had to get rid of the mice. And in order to keep the population down, Leonard would sell or give away some of the critters. But mostly, Leonard decided that he would use the acid to get rid of the mice. Oh, my God. No, Leonard. That's the first sign of a a psychopath. Um, Yeah. So he would dissolve them. And Chester said that it was really gross. And they turned into a brownish green sludge. See, these are the the details you come here for. Oh, my God. And then the, the deets. The deets. And I wrote in my notes here, that's very Jeffrey Dahmer of you, Leonard. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm I'm already trying. I'm laughing. And this I'm la- kid is like seven. <laughs> I'm laughing only be- – no, he's a teenager at this point. But still, I'm laughing only because it's very <laughs> – I don't understand. Yeah, and I don't understand. As a teenager, I had no interest in melting down mice. Maybe no. it's a boy thing, but I- – I asked Rob. He said he had no interest in seeing that happen either. So, well, and remember, like you'd see kids or like Dennis the Menace, I guess, with a magnifying glass, like setting ants on fire. I oh, like I did that. Like a, I mean, I did that to ants. ants. <laughs> yeah, well, what's why are ants and mice on different? Well, he wouldn't I do mean, it ants to a mouse, ants, but like also mice are mice, but also animals are animal, like living things. I guess okay. right. It's very PETA of me, however. <laughs> okay. It's like this, sure. this stepping stone. True. You start Anything, lighting them on fire. I never went anywhere bigger than an ant. However, if you think of the McDonald triad, if you use a magnifying glass to set an ant on fire, are you hitting two points on that triad? Cause it's when oh, in your bed, arson and animal and cruelty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. All right. So (laughs) as much as Leonard attempted to maintain a familiar relationship with his siblings and his cousins, the same respect and brotherly love was never extended to his younger brother, Donald. Um, Keep that in mind, because as this tale goes on, we'll find that Leonard, he has a real huge problem with anyone who he considered to be a leech on society. So, for example, people on welfare, people drawing from disability, that kind of thing. So... His younger brother, Donald, when he was around nine years old, he actually was in this really bad accident. He was hit by a train and he suffered extreme brain injuries afterwards. It left Donald with a lot of disabilities, obviously, and he relied heavily on his mother and family to care for him. And instead of being sympathetic to what his little brother was going through, he thought of Donald as nothing more than a burden. And he thought that people like him were better off dead. Um, bro, he was hit by a train. If he survived, it's for a reason. <laughs> like, well, and we'll see. Like, as this goes on, you'll see Leonard has odd jobs here and there, but like he does nothing. He's a thief. He's a, right. a waste of space. Yet, so he's he, a literal waste of space. Like, I don't know who he thinks he is to judge other people that right. need social assistance for whatever reason. When he is worse than all of them, right? Anyways, as Leonard got older and graduated from high school, he knew that he was seeking adventure, independence, that kind of thing. So in January of 1964, just after he turned 18, he made a decision to move out of his grandparents' home and enlist in the Marines. He would adapt well to the expectations of military life. He, of course, enjoyed learning all about weapons. He loved learning about the explosives, the specifics of chemical combat and guerrilla warfare. 
But it was the survivalist techniques that really made an impression on young Leonard Lake. I, I really don't like the combination of things here. No. Now he's got actual training. Yeah. Uh, but it was this, like I said, the survivalist techniques. He really, really got into that. And we'll see that a lot more later. So after enrolling in the military, he would often use the jargon he learned when referring to any projects or plans that he had, calling them operations or ops or projects, for example. It was never mm. just like, I got plans for Saturday. It's like, no, I've got this heavy disco operation that I'm <laughs> cracking down on, this mission to bust a move. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Anyways, so after completing his basic training, Leonard would go on to complete specialized training and become a radar technician. He transferred to a base in North Carolina where he would take courses in aircraft radar work. On his weekends off, he would often head over to visit family in South Carolina. His uncle would regularly host these family gatherings or like community parties. And it was at one of these parties in April of 1965 that he met 18-year-old Karen Lee Minersman. Now, Karen Lee was the daughter of one of his uncle's good friends, and when she and Leonard met, they were instantly attracted to one another. They agreed that they would write to each other, and the two kept in touch for the next few months before Leonard was called to duty and sent overseas to assist in the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. Like, real shit. Eh, we'll see. (laughs) Not really. Leonard didn't really see combat. He was a radar technician. He stayed mostly where he was stationed. And he uh, repaired military equipment. We'll kind of get there after. So they tried to continue writing while he was away, but eventually they lost touch. Leonard would remain overseas for almost a full year before being reassigned to a naval air station in California. But even though they had lost touch, it didn't mean that Karen had ever really left Leonard's mind. He still thought about her constantly. The two would rekindle their friendship in 1968, and after a few more months of writing back and forth, Leonard would take a leave in March of 1969 to fly out to Delaware and make their relationship official. During that visit, Leonard proposed to Karen, and before heading back to California, the couple would marry. Oh, wow. And she would return to California with him. Now, Karen described the early days of her marriage to Leonard Lake to be more or less average. However, she did say that there were some real red flags, like looking back, that there Mm -hmm. were, like in hindsight, some huge red flags, some really strange things. Yeah. She stated that Leonard would regularly joke around with his Marine friends about selling her body to them and encouraging her to wear as revealing clothing as possible when she was around them. Um, No. Yeah. She thought that it was a joke, but then, like, there were weird things that he would, like, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. so yeah. she looks back and she's like, wait, maybe he wasn't kidding? Yeah. Like, hold on. Yeah. He also started to become very domineering and controlling. He essentially was slowly trying to, like, groom her and create this master-slave dynamic between the two of them. And Ew. to placate her husband, she kind of submitted to this, but... She didn't really enjoy it as much as Leonard wished she did. Like, he wanted her to want to be dominated, essentially. Right. It didn't stop him from doing it anyways, even though she didn't want to. But, you know. In 1970, Leonard volunteered to do a second tour in Vietnam. And while he was overseas, Karen moved in with his grandparents. And I think this was a very welcome break from the controlling ways of her husband. I bet. Now, Leonard, on the other hand, would spend most of his days tormenting himself with thoughts that his wife was cheating on him back in the States. 
He also started acting extremely strangely on the base, doing things like working himself until he passed out from exhaustion. And in one incident, it was reported that he scaled a radar tower during a monsoon to apparently escape the chaos that was happening below him. Me not know. He sounds like he's having some mental health issues here. Yeah. And I, like I said, I just wanted to note that he didn't see combat firsthand. And while I know that like some people that were in Vietnam who who didn't necessarily go out and kill people and, and fight, like be on the field that they did see some traumatic things that could play a part in this. But he did, mo- it was stated that he mostly stayed. He was stationed in on the Da Nang air base and repairing air equipment. And that's basically where he stayed. He didn't really leave that area, but who knows what he saw. Yeah. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt there that maybe something fucked him up hard. Yeah. While he was he there. Could have seen a lot of shit. Yeah. Now, Leonard would confide his thoughts to a military mental health expert over in Vietnam, and over the course of his sessions with this expert, Lake would eventually be diagnosed with impending schizophrenia. Whatever the fuck that means. Yeah. Like, it's on, like oncoming. It's yeah. it might, and this was accompanied with hysterical neurosis. Mm. It was recommended that Leonard return home and undergo treatment in a mental health facility. So by the end of 1970, he was back home in California. He would spend a couple of months in a hospital psychiatric ward where he was declared a danger to himself and others. Hmm. During this time, like during his time at the hospital, Karen stated that there was this really weird incident where Leonard tried to in he tried to invade a storage area at the hospital to steal government property. She oh, okay. wasn't exactly sure what he was looking for, but she said he believed that it was extremely important that he complete this operation. Now, damn. He couldn't complete this mission because he came down with an aggressive t- attack of diarrhea. Oh, shit. And, really? after- and afterwards, he was, like, extremely depressed. So during his bout of depression, after his bout of the runs, he <laughs> started eating chocolate, like, mm, yeah. obsessively to try and make himself constipated so he could complete this mission without any, any interruptions next time. Oh, I don't know if he ever did once. Shame on me. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if he was ever able to actually complete the mission. It didn't say. But yeah. So this kind of behavior concerned the doctors. And after performing even more extensive tests, they recommended that Lake be completely discharged from the Marines for medical reasons. And he would officially officially leave the service in January of 1971. After being officially discharged, Leonard and Karen would settle down in San Jose, a time which Karen described as being pretty much normal. So he Hmm. probably was receiving treatment at this time, was properly medicated, all of that, and it seemed to be normal. Leonard found part-time work, but or he would try to find part-time work, but in order to make extra money for their little family, he started suggesting to Karen that she should start topless dancing. Now, she rejected the idea at first, but eventually agreed because there was no denying that the money was going to be great. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. (laughs) So she she was working a lot of hours at the topless bar and she was bringing home really good cash, like between tips and her salary. Yeah. Uh, But Leonard sat at home doing nothing, which understandably, understandably did not sit right with Karen. Yeah. And on top of that, he had to be in control of the finances and he would take every last penny from her. Fuck that. <laughs> I'm busting my tits making this money. It's mine. Yeah. Now, Leonard would begin abusing Karen at this time, doling out what they called controlled beatings. Mm-hmm. And during the beatings, he would ask Karen if she was enjoying her punishments. 
What? Oh, fuck off. It's stated in Don Laster's books that these beatings were Leonard's form of foreplay. Yeah, he he thinks he's a dom, for sure. Yeah. Uh, He also started to force Karen to pose nude for photos and suggested that Karen find another couple, like, that he and Karen find another couple that they could, like, swap with, stating that he wasn't Uh, able to get off on her alone anymore. Like, eat many dicks. Yeah. Eat all the dicks. Many, many dicks. Now, another thing that he started doing around this time that was really strange to Karen was that he didn't believe in phones, which I didn't know you just couldn't believe in phones. Yeah, like I it's mean, not they something exist. you believe in. They just it's, exist. So yeah. anyways, um, he didn't believe in having a phone line. Essentially, he was afraid people were, I don't know, coming after him. Tapping it in? I guess so, yeah. So Karen did eventually wear him down and convinced him to install a phone line, but he insisted on giving the phone company a fake name so that he could weed out scam calls. So if somebody <laughs> called asking for like... Hello, is Kenneth Wayne there? He'd be like, ha, telemarketer, bitch, got you. Click. Yeah. Like, Wait till they start calling you about your air ducts. Jesus Christ, yeah. I've never had so many people wanting to clean them before. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's true. <laughs> he also kept a variety of weapons in the house, which made Karen nervous. Uh, yeah. He apparently had a 25 caliber automatic, a 9 millimeter handgun, and a pistol. Jesus. What made Karen even more nervous was that one day she came home and the guns had just disappeared from the house. She had no idea where they were. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Leonard was also starting to get extremely jealous and possessive of his wife, even more than he ever had before. When he was in control of the situation, he would take pleasure in watching Karen engage with other couples. But when Karen showed any attention to someone of the opposite sex, he would fly off the handle. And this is even just like if she's at like the grocery mart and it's like a male cashier or, you know, like she works in a topless bar. So there's male clients there. Like he would get super jealous. Mm -hmm. Um, In November of 1971, while she was leaving, she was like walking out of work with a regular from the bar. uh, Leonard arrived and flew into a blind rage at the fact that Karen was walking and talking with another man. He jumped out of his car and was yelling and threatening her as she calmly and don't I, I want to meet Karen Lee because I'd love to know how she managed this. She's in the book it said she just calmly didn't engage, walked to her car, got in and drove away as he's in the parking <laughs> lot screaming at her. Now, by the time she arrived home, because she took her time like driving around the city because she did not want to go home. Yeah. So by the time she got there, Leonard had, of course, already ro- arrived home before her, but he had thrown all her belongings into the front yard and locked her out of their house. Damn. So, what did he expect? She works at a titty bar. Like, I, obviously, guys are going to be looking at her. That is her job. And so well, you can't get jealous of that. I mean, like yeah. the money, can't get jealous. Yeah. I, I don't know. So then that night, she actually loaded all of those belongings from the front yard into her car and she slept in the driveway. The next day, she headed to work. And when she came out after her shift, somebody, somebody, I say in air quotes, had broken into her car and stole all of her things. Jesus. It wasn't hard to determine who that thief was. No. Karen was pretty fed up with her husband at this point. And after living in the camper van they owned for a couple of weeks, she moved out as soon as her next paycheck came in. Uh, Leonard wouldn't let her go that easily, though, and he would harass her incessantly. 
He would break into her apartment, burn holes in her clothes, and verbally abuse her at every chance that he got. So if he Jesus. would see her, like, he would wait in the parking lot at her work and, like, yell insults at her. Just mm-hmm. a real piece of shit. Just a real yeah. asshole about it. The harassment lasted for almost a year, but in 1972, Karen and Leonard would officially divorce. Good. And it, the harassment would kind of fizzle out as Leonard sort of moved on. I think he realized that it was over for sure. Yeah. Okay, good. So in my opinion, Karen dodged like a grenade with that one. Oh, Thank yeah. God. Now, of course, Leonard was devastated when his marriage w- had ended and his sister Janet remembers that it was the only time she ever saw her brother cry. But I'm sure he was more upset that a woman had gotten the upper hand over him in this case. Yeah. And after this divorce from his first wife, I think the divorce itself would have a lasting impact on his view of women as a whole from that point on. If his mother abandoning abandoning him as a child didn't mm-hmm. already make him hate women, then Karen, the divorce this- from Karen Lee really sealed the deal. Two abandonments. That's going to send you over the edge. Yes. Now, to fill the hole in his heart that was left behind after his divorce, Leonard started placing personal ads in magazines seeking companionship. At first, I was like, that's weird. But then I was like, (laughs) wait a minute. Now, this is like the 70s. It's not weird. It's just like Tinder. So he would meet several women through these ads, engaging in relationships with some of them. One woman named Jennifer Gordon described her relationship with Leonard as kinky and stated that he would tie often tie her up during sex. But he would never let anyone tie him up. He always had to be the one in control. Yeah. He would yeah. also convince her to engage in prostitution as well as pose nude for him. He does this a lot. Leonard is very much a someone who wants everyone to pose nude for him. So you'll hear okay. me say him that a lot. When Leonard brought up making snuff films to Jennifer... Every red flag she ever saw in her life started waving in her direction. <laughs> so out of here. She kind of said to him, like, don't you think you'll go to jail if you did something like that? To which he responded, if he was ever arrested, he had a contingency plan. He had cyanide pills hidden everywhere and he would take one to avoid getting into trouble, which, of course, no one took seriously until he did that. Yeah. Wow. He, he's, he would say to Jennifer, you can't go to prison if you're dead, right? Jennifer would call it quits with Leonard shortly after that. Thank goodness. Now, one thing about Leonard Lake that's important to mention is that he had this favorite book. And we've talked about this book in at least one other episode, that being Bob Berdella, if you remember that. Mm. Uh, so this book is called The Collector, and it's by John Foles. And from or Fowles, sorry. And from Wikipedia, it states that the plot follows a lonely, psychotic young man who kidnaps a female art student in London and holds her captive in the cellar of his rural farmhouse. Oh, don't like that. The theme of this novel would inspire Leonard Lake, and it'd be one of his biggest fantasies to kidnap and hold captive a sex slave Mm-mm. to use whenever he wanted. No, he sir. also he also believed that there was this impending an unpreventable nuclear holocaust that was quickly approaching. So both his fantasies of kidnapping a sex slave and his worry about falling victim to an apocalyptic event would lead Leonard to relocating to a more rural area where he could build some sort of bunker to escape the effects of a nuclear disaster. Wow. And I'm sure to keep his sex slave in. Yeah. In the bunker, he would be able to store supplies to ensure his survival, which of course would include a woman with whom he could repopulate the earth with. Now, Leonard decided at this point that he was going to pack up and he moved to a small town called Ukiah, just north of San Francisco. 
He lived in a small hotel for a while and found work building and renovating low-income housing. He enrolled in an animal science program and a meat cutting class at Mendocino College. He would also take a side gig teaching survival skills to boys. Eventually, he would end up finding the perfect place to settle down just north of Ukiah in a commune-type setting called The Ranch. Now, The Ranch was a place where people from the 60s hippie era kind of settled down. It was a very free love sort of... There's like a Netflix documentary about The Ranch, isn't there? Well, there was a show called The Ranch with Ashton Kutcher, but I don't know if it was not a documentary. (laughs) There was something about the... It's like the kind of commune... Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen that. Maybe not Netflix, but there's definitely a documentary about it. Cool. I'll have to find it. Check it out. Mm -hmm. Now, the residents at the ranch, they respected Mother Earth with the land order, the Landowners Association drying up bylaws that prohibited the use of pesticides and weapons on the property. At least one of those rules Leonard Lake would break almost immediately. Sure. Yeah. Now, at a local festival, Leonard would meet a woman named Venus who was looking to do renovations on her cabin on the ranch. Leonard would offer to complete the work for her in exchange for accommodations. Venus agreed and the... And at first found Leonard to be charming and helpful, and the two became very close. He started to share details of his early life with Venus, talking about how his mother abandoned him and how he hated his brother Donald. You know, normal stuff. (laughs) He talked about survivalism and told her that he had buried provisions all around her property, which if it were my place, I'd be like, the fuck? You mean burying shit in my my yard? Don't understand. Now, eventually, as things usually do when it comes to Leonard Lake, Venus was alarmed by some behaviors that Leonard was exhibiting. He would invite his friend Charles Gunner, who um, Charles Gunner and him are really, really good friends. He comes up a lot in the book. And just like to give you a little insight, Charles appears to be his best friend, but it's almost like... He's like this guy that Leonard keeps around just to sort of like pick on to make himself feel better. Oh, okay. call him names, yeah. ridicule him, treat him like garbage, that kind of thing. He was extremely overweight, and Venus described what she thought was torturous behavior from Leonard when she first met Charles. When because Leonard had Charles come up to the cabin once, mm-hmm. she said that he would make Charles like they went for a walk up in the the hills there. But he, Leonard would pick the route with the steepest hills to go on their hikes to basically like exhaust the crap out of Charles because he was so overweight. It was almost like I said he was trying to torture him. Yeah, rude. Leonard said that he hated Charles and was disgusted by his weight gain. And also, so why Char- are you friends with him? Charles was on social assistance. He said he didn't like that Charles cheated on his wife and abused his kids. Like, it was all these things. And I don't know what Charles Gunner actually did in his personal life. He could have been a real D bag, but it really feels like Leonard was only friends with Charles Gunner just to humiliate, humiliate. harass, yeah. make, and then make himself feel better. What a douche. Yeah. Now, eventually, Lake started to treat Venus much in the same way that he had treated his first wife, Karen, and she knew she wanted to end this relationship with him. Good. He would alienate her from her friends and emotionally and verbally abuse her. And when the abuse turned physical, Venus immediately decided it was time to go. Now, in a weird twist, Leonard offered to buy her out of her cabin and Venus reluctantly agreed and left the ranch. And it Mm. almost makes me wonder, did Leonard do this on purpose to get a good deal on a cabin there? Right. 
Wow. But good for her for getting out of there and getting the hell out of there. Yes. Now, once the neighbors on the ranch started to get to know Leonard, they were immediately turned off by pretty much everything about him. He was not (laughs) like your regular resident up there. He would regularly do target practice on the property. And if you remember, that was completely against the morals of this community and the bylaws of the ranch. But worse yet, he would approach female neighbors and regularly ask them to, you guessed it, pose nude or semi-nude for him in photographs. What a pig. Can you imagine just in your apartment building, people walking up to you and being like, hey, I'm your neighbor from like the fifth floor and just wondering, you want to pose nude for me? I mean, I I see what you're going with, but don't forget where I live. (laughs) I can (laughs) picture it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, no, it's super creepy. Either way, even if you can picture it, it's 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 wrong. Yeah. So he had no boundaries at all when it came to this. And he once asked a female neighbor if he could photograph her nude. And she was like, oh, I'm not sure. And then he proceeded to say, oh, and also your daughter, who was 10. Ew. And she was like, "Um, no. Get the fuck out of here. Leave. Punch your throat. Yeah. When he did manage to convince women to pose for him, he would bring the photos to work and show them off in an album he created to the other men on his work crew. But Of course he, he would. What a pig. He, but he showed these photos to literally everyone, and we'll see that. Like, he was obsessed with these. This was, like, his thing. Okay? Like, he was such a great photographer? Like, I doubt it. Here. Now, he, I I don't think he was. I No, I mean, like, he's showing them off like he thinks he is. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. No, he, he definitely wasn't. <laughs> Now, Leonard really enjoyed attending medieval fairs, and this is something that he he was really interested in, like, medieval timey kind of things, Renaissance fair since he was a kid. And he would okay. go a lot in his spare time, which is fine. Now, Yeah, I mean, those giant pickles, they are something to admire. Oh, yeah. So. And I doubt they even <laughs> actually had those in the Renaissance, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever makes a festival worth going to. Um, now, this, like I said, it was an interest he had since he was uh, a kid, and he was over the moon obsessed with this really weird pet that one of his neighbors had. He knew for sure, once he saw this pet, that it would be a hit at all of these fairs he attended. A so, ferret. no. Mm. His neighbor, whose name was Otto, Otto Zell, would tell Leonard of his fascination with unicorns, and then he oh. had discovered this lost process of creating one himself. Whoa. Now, Otto actually had a goat that had gotten some surgery shortly after after his birth, which caused it to sprout one single horn in the middle of its forehead. This goat's name was Sir Lancelot. And I, I, listen, should be. Listen, I researched this lost, you know, art art of creating a unicorn, (laughs) of deforming goats. This is like, no, I'm not kidding you. It's no joke. It's it's not, it is a real thing. Some doctor did this in the 1930s. And if you ignore like the obvious ethical and like animal cruelty <laughs> things that are going on here, the goat looked pretty rad. It was like pretty awesome. <laughs> no, like I should put a, post a picture of it. It was really cool looking. I, I mean, I didn't look really deep into it. And there was a lot of sciencey things happening in the thing I read. And I was like, I don't understand what they're talking about. So I did not want to try to put it in here. But the, the, the goat looked cool. It was cool. a unicorn goat. Yeah. It was a unicorn goat. It, it looked pretty awesome. <laughs> now, Leonard was intrigued by the idea of having Sir Lancelot at his disposal. Not just because of how awesome it was to have a unicorn. 
which it was. <laughs> a unicorn goat. <laughs> but also because he knew that a unicorn would surely land him some hot babes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, obviously. <laughs> this wasn't as funny when I was writing it. I don't know why it's so funny now. Um, because imagine using a unicorn goat to pick up some hot babes. Some hot babes. Oh, maybe from the Renaissance Fair. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! So Leonard would actually work out a deal with Otto to start showing the goat off at local shows and festivals, and he would charge patrons for photos with Sir Lancelot, and he and Otto would split the the profits. And these were like regular photos, like kids coming up and getting not not naked naked photos photos with the unicorn goat. In nine, well, just thank wait. You for, thank you for clarifying that, though. I, at the know. at the fairs, it was regular pictures. Later on, not so much. In oh, 1979, no. uh, Leonard Lake would meet a 16 year old girl named Cindy Morgan, and he would convince her mother to allow him to take photos with her and the goat in a more natural setting back at his home on the ranch. No. Now her mother would come with her, but during oh, the photo God. session, Cindy said she couldn't help but feel that Leonard was trying to separate her from her mother. And when he did finally get alone, get her alone for a moment he immediately asked her if she'd like to pose nude with the goat no uh, no now <laughs> oh my god not that i want to defend leonard but he did try to be discreet by saying that she would be the perfect model for a more artistic shoot where he would <laughs> where he would use body paint and wings to make her look like a fairy but we all know he meant nude photos. Like, come on. Wow. A 16-year-old. Like, I get she's over the age of consent, but I still think that's illegal. No, oh, yeah, it's gross. Yeah, yeah. No, we don't, we don't like that. She declined his suggestion again, but Lake wouldn't give up so easily, and he would regularly show up at spots around Ukiah where he knew Cindy would be hanging out. Mm, my God. Now, eventually the young girl would kind of be, like, swept away with this older man because he's, like, in his late Ew. 20s, early 30s at this point, and she would agree to meet up with Lake and pose for him. No, and not- it started out with just, like provocatively posed so like still clothed but like unbuttoned and then it would become you know more and more until she was naked oh i hate that she later stated that this was more to get him off her back more than anything else and apparently it worked and after the photo session like never uh contacted cindy again thank god oh good but Cindy was not the only underage girl that Leonard like pursued because in 1972, the Davis family moved into a house on the ranch and their teenage daughter, daughter Darlene, would, befriend, would end up befriending many of the residents on the compound. Mm. In 1977, Darlene would meet 31-year-old Leonard Lake. He had, he had come to their parents, like to her parents' house, sorry during like a rainstorm and where he lived on the ranch, it was up a really steep hill and he couldn't get his truck up the hill in the rain. Sure. It was too yeah. like the mud and all of that. Cause it's all like dirt roads and shit up there. So he said, can I just park in your driveway? He was asking her parents, this. can I park in your driveway? He had a motorcycle in the back of his truck. So he was just going to ride the motorcycle up the hill and then come back and get his truck later. So that's kind of, he spotted Darlene in there. That's sort of how they met. She was only 13 at the time. Oh, come on. Now, she stated that she had a certain admiration and attraction to her older neighbor. Ew. (sighs) I doubt it. I mean, she's probably looking back and thinks she thought that, but guaranteed it's only because he groomed her at some point. Yeah. Over time, Lake would start visiting the Davis residents more often. He would offer to help with various jobs around their home and befriend Darlene's father. 
And he would often take Darlene out for rides on his motorcycle, which was something that she kept secret from her parents. No doubt at his request, because he's a garbage human. Soon their friendly motorcycle rides turned physical when Lake and a very young Darlene shared a secret kiss in the forest. (gasps) No, no, stop it right now. Their relationship turned intimate just two weeks before Darlene (gasps) turned 16 years old. So this was like a relationship, a friendship turned relationship between a 31-year-old and a 13-year-old that carried on for at least three years and longer. And the parents didn't know? Well, I think that they probably – we'll get there in a second. So Mm. he would eventually um, take her virginity when she was 16, like I said, and then propose to her. But because she was only 16, she rejected the offer, saying she wanted to wait until she was at least 18. I mean, sensible. Listen, he tried to convince her by saying that if she didn't marry him, he was going to run off and become a mercenary soldier because he couldn't imagine life without her. Goodbye. Yeah. Now Darlene was adamant she there would be no marriage. And then her her parents became suspicious of the relationship between their daughter and this much, much older Leonard. And they told Darlene that she wasn't allowed to ever be alone with him, which we all know how that goes when you're a teenager. Yeah. So that tactic didn't work. So to keep her safe, they ended up sending Darlene away to boarding school to prevent the couple from seeing each other, which. Okay. Good. Yeah. Get her away from that absolute human trash. Mm -hmm. Now, even though they were no longer to able to pursue a physical relationship, Leonard and Darlene would continue to correspond with each other through letters and phone calls, which lasted for several more years. And even after Leonard Lake got married for a second time, which we'll get to later. Now, like I mentioned earlier, Leonard was extremely into survivalism and preparing for Armageddon. So when he wasn't pursuing relationships with teenage girls or trying to convince women to, you know, pose in the buff for him with goats, he would be found sifting through magazines like Soldier of Fortune. And he would place personal ads in these magazines to meet like-minded individuals under the name Tom Myers to conceal his identity for some reason. Sure. God knows why. Well, it was, you never know who you're going to meet. Exactly. A, a posted ad. <laughs> I guess so. Now, it was through these ads that he met fellow survivalist and soldier, a man named Mark Novak. Now, Mark had recently received orders to be stationed at the Schofield Barracks in Hawaii, and Leonard had invited him to visit him at the Ukiah Ranch. So he decided that on his way to Hawaii, he would make a pit stop down in San Francisco because that's where he would be leaving from anyways, and Ukiah was really Mm -hmm. close there. Okay. He would go up to the ranch, and he would say that Leonard was pretty much a shit talker. He didn't know what he was talking about, really, when it came to survivalism, and acted like he knew more than he did essentially but really was stupid yeah (laughs) otherwise he said he thought he was an okay guy he just yeah was talking out of his ass a lot and i know this doesn't seem important now but mark novak is actually the person who will end up hooking leonard up with his future accomplice so i just wanted to mention him now because he does come up a few more times in the story so just remember mark now, in the summer of 1980, Leonard Lake would attend a Renaissance Fair in Marin County with his trusty sidekick, Sir Lancelot, the goat. And it was at this event that Leonard would meet a very important person in the story, a young woman by the name of Clarilyn Cricket Balaz. Now, mm. Clarilyn was an adventurous young woman who worked as a teacher's aide in the Bay Area, and they immediately hit it off, like, right from Jump Street. She didn't shy away from Lake's sexual desires and was excited by the idea of being in kind of an S&M type relationship. 
And she was of legal age. She was an adult, which is, okay. you know. Which we like. Thumbs up. And she's consenting. Exactly. To this, uh, dom sub relationship. So that's good. Yeah. She was interested in sexual experimentation. And she liked the idea of introducing other women and men into their relationship. So everything that Lake would want. Yeah. You know? And Absolutely. she wanted, she even wanted to pose nude for him. So she was enthusiastic about it. Wow. So, yeah. Perfect. Unless he, one of the things that turns him on is not the consent. <laughs> well, we will see. <laughs> oh, sure. um, so the couple would meet up more, with more and more frequency over the next coming, over the coming weeks. He would mm-hmm. meet Cricket's parents and get along well with her father. And just keep in mind, Lake was still writing letters to his teenage, like former quote unquote girlfriend in his mind, but victim in mine. Darlene, mm-hmm. he would tell her all about his new love interest and would even send erotic pictures of Cricket to Darlene. Some of the pictures even included shots of Leonard and Cricket having sex, which is gross. That is really fucked up to send to a young, probably girl. about seventeen-year-old at this point. Yeah, it's I don't get you, Leonard, but whatever. And Cricket, she's not much better. We'll talk more about her next week and her involvement in this, but she's a piece of shit too. So, all right. Now, Cricket and Lake soon moved in together in Lake's cabin on the ranch, and while the neighbors seemed to like Cricket, they didn't particularly like Leonard, and were growing more and more distrustful of Lake each day that he lived there. They already didn't like him because he was breaking lots of rules to begin with, but he was actually caught stealing building materials from a property on the ranch. Uh, The police were called, and he was arrested. Well, in well, jail. Why can't they just kick him out of the ranch? Well, while he was in jail, a committee decided that they would ask Lake to sell his property and leave the ranch. And he reluctantly agreed because he just, everybody hated him. And he was just yeah. like, fuck it. I'm just going to leave. Um, so him and Cricket packed up all their belongings and they left the ranch for good. Now they would move to a small community called Philo, where the couple lived in a hotel. Lake would take a job managing the hotel while Cricket worked part-time at an island, at an, ugh, I can't talk anymore at an elementary school as a teacher's aide. Lake would also become a volunteer firefighter and he and Cricket would start to settle into a routine that made them appear to be a normal couple just trying to get by. And you know what? If all they were up to, if even if they were being like the kinky sex side of it, wife swapping, whatever, as long as they were keeping everything above board, consenting with adults, mm-hmm. right? Cool. Yeah. Things weren't always as they seemed, though, with them because they're pieces of shit. So him and Cricket would end up placing ads in a newspaper looking for a woman who was willing to relocate to a rural area to help around the hotel. 18-year-old Connie Richards would answer the ad, and at first everything seemed normal, but it wouldn't be long until Connie realized that the job she had accepted required much more than just the duties of maid service. What Cricket and Leonard really wanted was a sex partner... Oh, no. Why not just advertise that then? Yeah, and get consenting adults who have all the information. Yeah. Now, she stated that she was curious and young, and she decided to actually stay with the couple, stating that she didn't really have an interest in cricket, but she did engage sexually with Leonard occasionally. Like, is he good looking? What the fuck? No, I... No. No. I don't understand. No. She said that he, she found it strange that Cricket didn't seem to care that Leonard was openly having sex with other women. Connie said that this, the sexual encounters with Leonard, they actually weren't particularly kinky. And in fact, he was gentle and considerate, despite the fact that they always had like S&M paraphernalia just scattered everywhere in their apartment. Hmm. Now, one thing that did give Connie pause, though, was when Leonard confessed to her that he had sexual fantasies about his sister. 
Ew, what the fuck? Now, it, it, the reason why I want to bring that up is because I've, I heard in like other podcasts, like I listened to a couple other podcasts on this and um, read in a couple of articles that as a kid, he was obsessed with pornography and would take naked photos of his sisters. I didn't find that in either of the two books I read, which were both very detailed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's true, but as far as what it stated in this book is that he had this sexual fantasy about his half-sister Janet, but it was that's all it was, and he never acted on it. Well, I don't know, that's though. That's gross. Yeah. Either way, disgusting. Fucked up. Now, Leonard, of course, would ask Connie to pose nude for him. Are you surprised? She refused, Mm-mm. but eventually agreed to some topless photos, which Leonard eventually mailed to Darlene Davis at her boarding school because, sure, why not? Oh, my God. <laughs> Here's a complete stranger, topless, for your pleasure. Enjoy. Yeah, why not? On September 13th, 1981, Leonard Lake and Clara Lynn Cricket Balaz would officially tie the knot in a small ceremony in Marin County. Leonard's longtime friend, who we talked about er- earlier, Charles Gunner, would be mm-hmm. his best man, and Connie would attend as a witness along with some of Cricket and Leonard's family members. Connie would leave the motel just three months after answering the ad in the newspaper, realizing that she served no other purpose to Charles, or sorry, to Leonard and Cricket than being a ses- sex object for their yeah, fantasies. Because really. she really wasn't doing any work around the hotel. That's literally all she was there for. Wow. Now, when Connie left, a new friend had moved in with the couple, and this was a young Asian man by the name of Charlie Ng. Now, Charlie had been introduced to Leonard by a fellow soldier and survivalist who I mentioned earlier called Mark Novak. Right. So, Charles, Charlie Ng, was a Marine who had gotten himself into a heap of trouble while stationed in Kane Ohe Bay in Hawaii, or K-Bay, as I'm going to call it for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> hey, bae. And was a fugitive on the run. He needed somewhere to hide out to avoid facing a court martial. Charles was grateful to Leonard and Cricket for taking him in and worked hard at the motel in Philo in exchange for his room and board. Mm. So who is Charlie Ng and why does he matter? I'm going to tell <laughs> you because he matters a lot. Okay, tell us. <laughs> so... Charles Cheetah Ng was born on December 24th, 1960, to parents Kenneth and Oi Ping. He was the youngest of three children. He was born in Hong Kong, sorry. I should say that. He was the youngest of three children, the older two children being his older sisters. Charles's father desperately wanted a son and said that when Charlie was born, it was the best gift he could have gotten. He was born on Christmas Eve as well. So Yeah, like literally the gift. Yeah. His father came from an extremely poor, extremely challenging background and was devoted to giving his children the life and opportunities that he never received growing up. He would work numerous jobs to support his family and ensure that his children were able to attend the best schools and receive the best care and education that he could provide them so that they could grow up to be productive citizens and make something of themselves. Good. Kenneth and Oi Peng would beg schools to take their children and would not take no for an answer. And if a school said no, we aren't going to take them. They would go every day until they agreed to take their kids in. Wow. Determined. Yes. Now, both of Charlie's sisters excelled at school, but Charlie never seemed to take the opportunities that his parents worked so hard for seriously. He was a more or less average student, but he had a real artistic talent. He just never applied himself in any way, shape, or form, period. Mm-hmm. 
This, of course, would aggravate Charlie's father. And on top of him having no motivation, he was also very timid and shy, which his father also didn't like for some reason. And Char- sorry, Charlie's father or Charles's father would admit later on that he would beat his son. Oh. For not being like living up to the expectations that he yeah. had set for him. The beatings were sometimes so severe that Charlie's mother and sisters would jump in to stop them. But regardless of the punishment, it never seemed to put him on the right path. Well, I mean, I mean it's not, not really the greatest the method of going about it, but yeah, I agree. Now, I am going to say something that might be controversial, but there's a part of me because a lot of the, the these details came out during court about Charles's upbringing. Um his parents would say this while he was on trial later on. And I almost wonder if the father is taking blame for what his son did, like mm-hmm. saying this is all my fault and maybe creating or exaggerating what his upbringing was like. But I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there, mm-hmm. but who knows now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now Charles was a bit of a loner with very few friends and he would spend time with uh, all these pets that he had and adored he loved his okay. pets uh he took very good care of his chicken he looked oh. after it fed it but sadly the rest of the family didn't appreciate that his pet chicken as much as he did and eventually decided to kill it without telling him he didn't oh find God. out that they had killed the chicken until they were eating it for dinner that night yeah hmm. i knew you were gonna say that i believe that <laughs> happened to somebody we know with a much larger animal <laughs> Possibly oh a cow. God. Possibly a cow. I, I don't want to say who this person is or what the animal is because I could be wrong. <laughs> but do you know? What you're yeah. About. <laughs> and oh I feel, God. I feel very bad. Like for, I feel bad for that happening to Charles Ng because if if I'm remembering things correctly, it, it was very traumatic <laughs> to our friend. Yeah. Aww. So. Yeah. Now, he also had a pet turtle, but it would go to the bathroom all over the house. So he was, again, forced to get rid of that pet as well. He sent it. They they took him that time to a pond and had him release the turtle. They didn't need it. Well, I mean, <laughs> but the turtle probably died because it was domesticated and didn't know how to find its own damn food. <laughs> he also had a dog at one point. Like, he brought home a dog and was like, look, I have a dog. And his mom was like, get that thing out of my house and made him release that too. So... And one of the podcasts of the on the on uh, this case that I listened to was talking about this fact of how good with pets Charlie was and how much he loved his pets, mm-hmm. and it's so opposite of what you would expect for, from somebody who turned out the way he did. That sure. usually they're harming pets; they're not like diligently caring for them. But there yeah. is another case, and I can't remember what the case is where the guy was obsessed with his cats, like obsessed with them. Like he took care of his cats like they were queens. Do you know what I, I mean? I do. Yeah, I remember that, but I don't remember. I can't the remember name. the whole case. All I like I, the thing I remember most about that case is that this guy was obsessed with his cats, like loved mm. them, which again is weird for a serial killer because usually they don't like anything or anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as Charlie got older, his behavior would continue to spiral out of control. He would go to a friend's house and steal a photograph of this kid's sister. And he was also caught wearing his mother's pantyhose, I guess. And his parents would end up taking him to a psychiatrist and and, and having him enter into, like, mental health facility, 
and sure. seemed get, getting therapy and all of that. But that did little to change Charlie's behavior. His parents weren't ready to give up on their child, though. They ended sending. They ended up sending him to a private Catholic school called St. Joseph's College. He had a hard time making friends at his new school and mostly kept to himself. Did he move to the States already? Did I No, that? so he's still in Hong Kong. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, because he had very few friends, he would develop this obsession with martial arts, and he really, really, really wanted to be like his idol, Bruce Lee, who he referred to as Big Brother Dragon. Oh. He practiced his moves constantly, and when his mother wouldn't allow him to have real weapons, he crafted his own. He would make nunchucks by tightly packing paper towel into a cardboard tube and connecting the tubes with string. Mm. Like, whipping those around. Okay. He took his training very seriously and thought that his skills in martial arts gave him a sense of power and control and dominance that he lacked in other parts of his life. I'm not shocked by that. That seems yeah, like something that we've we've talked about before in different cases too. Maybe not this exact scenario, but things like this. Mm-hmm. His mother tried to curb his interest in martial arts, fearing that he would become aggressive and start fights with other children, but her efforts failed. Uh, her efforts failed, sorry. A normally timid Charlie would start acting out physically towards others. He used slingshots to fling marbles through the windows of nearby buildings and cars and would attack, they said, Western children, like wealthy white kids in Hong Kong, uh, yeah. in, in parks. He would attack them, beat the hell out of them for no reason at all. He also learned how to make Molotov cocktails and oh. enjoyed enjoyed whipping them off the roofs of buildings. So Uh, there we go. Uh, One of the few friends he had at that time was quoted as saying, Charlie enjoyed destroying things at random just for the sake of destruction. It was fun and exciting, but after a while I got scared by his recklessness. Mm. When he was disciplined at school by a female teacher, Charlie started sending her threatening and obscene letters, (gasps) causing him to eventually be expelled from St. Joseph's College. Wow. That's extreme. Right? I think... (sighs) He's exhibiting some pretty like he's he's unstable already. Do yeah. you know what I mean? There's something else yeah. going on here. Now, after his expulsion, his parents decided that maybe a change of scenery would help to curb their son's behavior and send him on a better path. Mm-hmm. One of his uncles was a teacher at Bentham Grammar School in Northwest England, so Charlie's parents decided to send him overseas to attend the private boarding school. In England, Charlie's grades did improve, but socially, he still really struggled. One thing about Charlie was that he was an aggressive kid who acted tough, but he was also painfully shy. Just like I said earlier, he was very timid. It was something that his father like really didn't like about him. Yeah. And he just didn't fit in with these kids in England. A former classmate recalled, all of us boarders tended to clan together, but Charles never really seemed to fit in and was very much a loner. Hmm. He spent all of his time practicing martial arts. I wonder, like, you know, subconsciously, so he could kick his dad's ass next time he tried to beat him. Now, one of the only classmates Charlie did befriend was a boy named Angelos Solomon. But when Charlie felt like Angelos had rejected him, which there wasn't any specific incident, it just said that he felt he had been rejected by him. He said it was said that he punished this kid by stealing money and valuables from his dorm room. Now, the police would be called, and after some convincing from the dormitory prefect, Gary Cook, this was a somewhat, this was someone at the dorm that Charlie trusted, he ended up confessing the theft. 
Charlie was charged with the theft and was required to appear before the magistrate's court. And a short while after this, he was again caught stealing, this time shoplifting from a local department store. It was after that incident that Charlie's uncle would contact his mother and let her know that it just wasn't working out and she, he should probably go home to Hong Kong. He'd be better off with his parents. Wow. But his mother did not want him back in Hong Kong. She didn't want to <laughs> give up on him. So she ended Sorry, up. He's your problem now. Yeah, well, it, no, she wouldn't leave him in England. She would actually end up sending him to San Francisco to live with one of his aunts where they would enroll him in a in a, another private boarding school called the College of Notre Dame. Jeez. The tuition for that school was $21,000, which is a hundred. It's over $160,000 U.S. Well, and I was just going to ask you, where are they getting all this money for private schools? It said that his parents literally, like they owned a store in Hong Kong, but they literally would work like nine days a week. Yeah, skipping holidays cow. they would never take any time off they anything they could to make sure their kids got the the education that and opportunities that they didn't get so yeah it was expensive and yeah. of course charlie had little interest in school and instead put all of his focus into joining the american military hmm. now he had gotten himself a driver's license and a car <clears throat> But he was notoriously a bad driver. And in the autumn of 1979, he had four car accidents in the span of three days. And after... Yeah. What? <laughs> That's, one of them is twice a day. Yeah. Now, after his last car accident where he, like, wrapped his car around a pole, he fled the scene. And to avoid being caught by the police, he signed up for a six-year stint in the Marines. I mean... Sure. Sure. <laughs> now, in order to sign up, because remember, he's not an American citizen. You have to be an American to sign up for the Marines. But he just walked in. He forged his documents and told the recruitment officer that he was born in Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> what? I I question the Marines a lot over the uh, next little bit here because I'm like, how did this happen? Yeah. Not just that. On through. Yeah, he slips on through a lot of shit in the next you didn't little need bit. Any ID to join the Marines? I guess no not. ID, not one. I guess not. I don't wow. understand. Now, <laughs> Charlie thrived in in a military setting, so this is kind of where he really found his place. Sure. He, he the training alone is like combat, you know, yeah. like that. Oh yeah, fighting so, that he's used to. Yeah. Now he completed basic training in San Diego and then transferred up the coast to Camp Pendleton for infantry training. By May of 1980, he had made private first class. He trained as an anti-tank gunner and was sent on his first tour of duty at K-Bay in Hawaii. Wow. Now fully immersed in his military career, Charlie lost all contact with his family. They would only learn that their son had dropped out of school and joined the Marines after the aunt had told them in a letter. Mm -hmm. I bet you they were some pissed off. Well, after spending all that money on tuition, I'm like, fuck. Like, yeah. Charlie loved being in the military and was proud of being a Marine, but this wouldn't stop the 21-year-old from embarking on a life of crime, even if that meant double-crossing the American military. Uh-oh. While standing guard outside a the base armory, he realized how easy it would be to break in and steal weapons. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. Aang started planning his heist and recruited Corporal Christopher Thomas, a friend of his from the base, to assist him with the break-in. They also approached fellow soldier Ken Armini, who was scheduled to be on sentry duty on the night of the break-in. His role would be to simply look the other way when Charlie entered to, to steal the guns. 
He would also provide a getaway vehicle for them to put the guns into and, and drive them to another location. Sure. I guess I guess it's easy to steal some weapons if you get the people who are protecting the weapons on your side. Like and <laughs> honestly, <laughs> the heist itself, like he basically busted through a window. Like he used like bolt cutters to cut like the wire mesh off the, the window and busted in through there. I didn't put all the details of the heist. It wasn't that interesting, but he got in really yeah. easily, which is why I'm like, this is like not just a store, like a pawn shop or something that he's stealing guns yeah. from. Like, this is the fucking armory. Why is it this easy to get in and steal guns from them? But yeah, whatever. Very strange. So the heist itself surprisingly went off without a hitch. Charlie and his accomplice made off with over $11,000 worth of weapons, which is a lot more in today's. I didn't look up what the conversion is on that, but it is yeah. a lot more. Now, they stole seven forty-five caliber pistols, three M16s, three M60s, and a Starlight Night Scope. And don't ask me what any of that means, because I don't know. But it sounds technical yes. and dangerous. I believe they also stole, stole some grenades. But Oh, yeah, perfect. Yep, because yeah. you need those. I do know what this means. They field stripped the weapons, which means they took them all apart. Oh, good one. <laughs> I learned that from Rob. Thank you, Rob. And <laughs> they hid them in a waterproof duffel, duffel bag, and they put them under some bushes for the night until they could figure out how to get them off the base the next day. Now, the next day, Charles would tell his friend Ricardo Daly about the weapons he had stolen and asked for his help to move them. Daly called his friend Mark Campbell to ask him to come and pick him and Charlie up at the base. Now, surprisingly, eventually they all get caught. And I, I think you won't be shocked to know it's because too many people got involved in this. Yeah, maybe. Maybe yeah. too many cooks in that plan. Maybe when you, you know, plan to steal guns, like a lot of guns from the armory that you work on in the military, you don't tell all these people. But and I'm glad to know that there's at least some crooked, non-crooked Marines there too, because I was getting beginning to feel a little sus about why all of these marines were going along with this plan well at one point ricardo daly and mark campbell like in the book it says all of a sudden they were like why are we doing this but like yeah. i think there's like this this thing with the marines they refer to it a lot semper fi where it's like you don't leave anybody behind you you support your fellow soldiers all of that kind of stuff so they were really but i mean charles Zhang had no problem flipping when it came down to it to cut yeah. a deal for himself. Anyways, before all that though, um, Mark Campbell did come and he picked up Charlie and uh, Ricardo Daly and they loaded the guns into his car and they headed to a storage facility facility that Charlie had a locker at, but they, when they got there, that facility was closed. So then Ricardo Daly offered to hide the weapons in exchange for $500. Not enough. <laughs> Five hundred bucks. That's Bro. not enough. That's not enough. Yeah. You got scammed. Yeah. <laughs> now they dropped Charlie off at the mall and then hid the weapons in a, the bushes at some lookout point in the mountains. And while they were doing that, all hell was breaking loose back at the base because the weapons were discovered to have been missing. Mm, yeah. Now Ricardo Daly and Mark Campbell actually hid out at a hotel for the next week until things died down and they could consider what their options were here. And they eventually decided to bury the weapons in the mountain until things died down. Okay. So the NIS considered this robbery to be an inside job, like right from the hop. And they already had Charles, 
like Charles Ng in their sights as they had received reports of him oiling up a pair of bolt cutters on the day of the heist. <laughs> I mean, what you got there, Charlie? Oh, well, nothing. He does. He denied having any involvement. Oh. He even denied even owning a pair of bolt cutters, let alone oiling some up. But they actually gave a polygraph to the accomplice in this, Corporal Christopher Thomas, and he failed that miserably. Now they brought him in. Uh, Thomas and for questioning and he wouldn't speak to them but after about six hours he finally broke down and told them everything. Charles was also apprehended and he started telling NIS investigators every detail of the heist from start to finish like he left nothing out he did not care. Charles cut a deal to reduce his prison sentence and was taken to Pearl Harbor for the night before being returned to K-Bay where he was held in custody And while he was awaiting his fate there, he noticed while he was in the brig there that the two guys that were guarding him, they were kind of distracted, talking, you know, doing whatever they were doing while they were supposed to be watching him. Uh And he decided to take that uh, as his opportunity to bounce. He's like, you know what? I don't like it here. I'm out. He managed to quietly slide out a window undetected and booked it to a friend's quarters back on the base. How? How do you just slide out a window in jail? I just don't. <laughs> He's skinny. <get> it. <laughs> I don't know. He Alex macked it. <laughs> he told his friends that he was framed for the robbery, or his friend that he whose house he went to, he said he was framed for the robbery and asked him to let him hide out there for the night. The next day, his friend gave him some civilian clothes and $20 and snuck him off base in the trunk of his car. Wow. Now, Charles would rough it in the wilderness for two days, but after spending those two days cold and wet and contracting a nasty case of diarrhea, diarrhea comes up twice. It's crazy. <laughs> he called his friend Mark Novak, who we've already talked about a couple of times, wow. who lived at the Schofield Barracks in Hawaii. Charlie figured that no one would come looking for an escaped fugitive in an army barracks and thought that this would be a good place to hide out until he could figure out what to do. Now, Mark Novaks would let Charlie stay with him for about three weeks before telling him about his friend and fellow survivalist slash former Marine in California who might be willing to let Charles hide out with him. And, of course, that was Leonard Lake. Wowzers. Now, Charlie's parents ended up sending him $300 to get him on a flight back to the mainland. He flew to San Francisco and contacted Mark Novak's friend, Leonard, who was already expecting his call. Mm-hmm. Charlie arrived at the Philo home of Leonard Lake and Cricket Balaz in November of 1981 and was grateful to be welcomed with open arms into the home of these two kind strangers. He fit right in with his host and felt for the first time that he belonged somewhere and he looked up to Leonard Lake like a father figure almost. Leonard would teach him how to be self-sufficient and live off the land. He even allowed his young protege to get a dog. Oh, okay. He was happy that Charlie shared a lot of the same interests as him, especially when it came to survivalism, and was impressed with his skills as a marksman. Leonard and Charlie would start to use their army training to plan and carry out criminal activities to gain extra income. They would rob gun stores and pawn shops, and would even head over to the ranch to steal marijuana crops to sell on the streets. Awesome. Leonard would also reveal to Charlie his plans to build a bunker and kidnap and hold women captive for sex. No, he said that. He he just admitted it. Yeah. Wanting to impress Leonard, Charlie was all in. Oh, sweet Jesus. I cannot. Now, according to the book No Kill, No Thrill by Darcy Hendon and Greg Owens, the pair would hatch plans to abduct sex workers off the streets of San Francisco for free sex. One of their first victims was a woman who worked as uh, an escort for an agency there. 
Leonard picked the woman up and took her to a hotel where Charlie was hiding. He was buck-ass naked when they got there. And once uh, Leonard and this woman were in the room, Charlie jumped out from behind a door wielding a knife and violently raped this woman while stabbing the knife into the bed beside her to terrorize her during the attack. Jesus Christ. There's no other details on that. I'm not – like, they obviously weren't caught, but – just something they early on before they even get to what they are actually going to do mm. they're already doing this in march of 1982 leonard and cricket moved out of the hotel that they were managing to a place called indian creek ranch leonard had been hired on as a youth camp caretaker which do background checks people like like what is happening yeah Charlie would take along, but before leaving, he would write a letter to Mark Novak telling him about what he was up to and where he was. And can I just say, if you're a fugitive, why are you writing letters to people to say, yo, I'm just letting you know what I'm doing and here's where I am and this is where we're going? Yeah, I hope to hear back from you. (laughs) This was a huge mistake. The NIS intercepted this letter from Charlie, who was Mm -hmm. using the alias Charles Lee, and they quickly took action. They contacted the Mendocino Mendocino County Sheriff's Department and traced Charlie to the Indian Creek Ranch. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So he was about to be a fugitive no more. (laughs) On April 29th, 1982, the NIS raided the ranch and both Charlie and Leonard were arrested. The agents would find a cache of weapons hidden all over the place, like buried in the yard hidden wow. in the walls, under floorboards, in the ceiling, all of that kind of shit. And it was all um, weapons and, and all of that that they had stolen from local shops. They had also discovered $50,000 worth of stolen gold, silver, and camera equipment. Jesus. Ooh, yikes. Gold from? Pawn shops. I guess, okay, like yeah, I guess. Like teeth and shit, right? I don't know why I was expecting, like, gold gold bars. Bars. <laughs> Just <laughs> fucking scrooge mcduck up in there <laughs> with their coins and their bar no it's probably like teeth and rings and shit like that yeah chains yeah, yeah. um leonard was charged with 17 felony felony counts of burglary grand theft and a slew of weapons offenses and he was later freed on a three thousand dollar bond which i think cricket paid it? yeah Charlie was flown back to Hawaii to face his charges from the break-in at the armory at K-Bay, and he faced an 18-year prison term for conspiracy, larceny, burglary, and escaping custody. Now, he would strike a plea deal, so he would Mm -hmm. not get 18 years. Now, Leonard did not want to face his charges and serve prison time, so he actually jumped bail and, like, peaced out. Yeah. And Cricket, his wife, did not want to be tied down to a fugitive. So they would actually separate and eventually arrange to divorce. However, they would continue this very close sexual relationship and meet up whenever it was convenient and it would allow it <laughs> to happen. Little booty call meetups. Yeah. Now, Cricket would move back in with her parents while Lake moved around from place to place and would make money by committing petty thefts and selling drugs. He, again, would often stay with his longtime friend, Charles Gunner, when he didn't have any other options. And like I said, he was such a dick to Charles. And I cannot imagine why this guy allowed him to stay with him, let alone protect him from Mm -hmm. the law and not call the police on this fucking piece of shit. But I don't know Charles Gunner. They say that he's a garbage human as well, but I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Lake eventually moved into a cabin owned by Cricket and her father near the small town of Wilseyville in Calaveras County. 
Near the end of 1982, Leonard would shock his entire family when he told them that he wanted to repair his fractured relationship with his younger brother, Donald, who he had always despised. Because of his brother's disability, he had always viewed Donald as this lazy piece of crap who deserved to die and did not hide this from people. Like, he just said it to anyone. So it was a kind of a pleasant surprise for everyone when Leonard suggested that he and Donald take a bit of a road trip together to fill this position as a house sitter. Now, Donald was surprised but welcomed the opportunity to patch things up with his estranged brother. Leonard and Donald would uh, leave like Leonard's mother's house together, but sadly Donald would never be seen or heard from again. And the Mm. only sign of him was a few days after his disappearance when someone using his ID walked into a social club in San Francisco and took out a membership in Donald's name. This, the man who did this was a green eyed man with an obvious toupee. (laughs) And he would regularly ask the female escorts employed by the club to pose nude. Oh, before him. So I wonder I mean, who that is. I mean, we can only speculate. Great disguise, bro. <laughs> now, of course, Leonard denied having anything to do with Donald's disappearance. However, I think we can assume what happened here. Yeah. Just yeah, saying. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. <laughs> in journal entries that Lake kept in the in early 1983, he would write, change Don, Don's address. And this was referring to a post office box that he had set up to receive his brother's disability checks. What a piece of shit. My thing is here is that they don't really go into detail about this. And of course, we already know that Leonard like commits suicide before he com- like admits to anything or makes a confession. So did no one question where Don- – like what about yeah. Leonard's mother? Was she not like, hey, hey Len, where's your brother? Like- have, you, uh, have you seen old Donnie? Yeah, like I haven't seen him in a few days. He went with you on a road trip and then never came back. You know where he is, and it went, and like Leonard was just like, "No, haven't seen him." And mom was like, "All right, cool." Yeah, well, because it's cool. not even like, and I get that like adults can go missing on their own volition. It ha- like it happens. We know that sure. we've done this case a lot, and it does happen. And sometimes it's worst case scenario, and they've been murdered. Other times they've just walked out Wanted of their life, disappear. Yeah, but Donald had those disabilities and relied on his mother and his sisters yeah. for help. He, he wasn't able to survive on he, his own. And he wasn't just like the person to just be like, deuces, I'm out. You know right? what? I can do this. Yeah. So nobody asked questions. I don't understand. But regardless, even though Leonard Lake hated anyone who was on disability, that obviously didn't apply to him. And if he was living off of other people's disability checks, because that's exactly what he was doing with <laughs> Donald. He wow. Was, he, he lived off of Donald's disability checks for quite some time. But according to his journal entries from around this time, he started to become worried that he would be caught cashing the checks and needed to come up with another plan because mm. he didn't want to go to jail. And he was a fugitive who thought everybody yeah. was looking. At this point, he thought, they're all looking for me. Everybody's looking for me. I'm this, like, wild man, most wanted. <laughs> I'm, like, uh, White Earp or something. Like, I, no, nobody cared about you, Leonard. You were, like, small potatoes in terms of what people were looking for at this time. But whatever. Mm-hmm. So this is when he started writing about something called Operation Fish in his journal. And... What Operation Fish was, was a plan involving his longtime friend, Charles Gunner. And the reason why he called it Operation Fish was because, like I said, Charles Gunner was really overweight and he called him Orca. But in order to conceal the fact that he was talking about Charles Gunner, he just called it Fish because they wouldn't be able to put together fish and whale. No, obviously. Obviously. Anyways, 
he's an idiot. So Operation Fish. And what his plan was, was that he was going to kill his longtime friend, Charles Gunner, and collect his disability checks. <laughs> My God. Now, no one would suspect that, though. No. <laughs> so perfect plan. Right. He tried to put his plan into action several times, but he kept failing. And this was because Charles Gunner was really big. So, like, he, like, tried to drug him. It didn't work. He tried to do, like, he couldn't figure out how, like, if I, you know, hit him in the head in the cabin, how am I going to move the body? Like, it's just, it has to be a two-man job. And the only other person that would help me is in jail because he got, we got caught stealing guns. So, um, he didn't know what to do, but he, he did eventually apparently succeed because on May 24th, 1983, Lake wrote phase one of operation fish complete. Finally. Now Charles Gunner had divorced his wife at this point, but he mm. had custody of his two young daughters. So oh, no. it, Leonard was kind of dating this woman at, at kind of casually at this time. And he had arranged for her to sort of babysit the kids and had told her that he was taking Charles for like a boy's trip to Las Vegas. And uh, when he returned without Charles, he told everyone that Charles Gunner had run off with a woman that he met and just wouldn't be coming back. He just, he's gone. And he also said that he had, uh, one of the reasons why he wasn't going to come back was because Leonard told him he wasn't allowed to come back because he had video evidence of him abusing his children. Because he also said that Charles Gunner would beat his children. Right. Now, Leonard actually would take the kids and take care of them, even like getting them bunk beds and shit for, for quite a while, but did eventually arrange to have them taken care of by one of Charles Gunner's longtime friends. Again, somehow nobody asked questions. They just accepted this explanation and moved on with their life. Not very great investigation skills around Mm. there. I don't even think anyone reported this to the police. I think it was just like, oh, okay, we're just going to take your word for it, Leonard. This is just... This this is life now. Sounds legit. And then he continued to take Charles Gunner's disability checks and cash them. Wow. I don't know. Now, while all of this is going on in Leonard's life, Charles Zing was serving his sentence at Leavenworth Prison in Kentucky. He had arrived there in 1982 after striking a plea deal, which got him just an 18-month sentence for the the armory robbery. Mm -hmm. Now, he and Leonard would actually write letters back and forth during this time. And in the letters, Leonard would send pictures of himself and Cricket, along with pictures of his cabin in Wilseyville, where he had been living. He would also tell Ng about this large cinder block bunker that he had started construction on behind his cabin. Ng would share the photos and stories of the plans he and Lake were making together to fellow inmates, stating that he wanted to bomb a bus station, rob banks, and most disturbingly, sexually torture women in this bunker that Leonard was building on the property. You know, as soon as I get out of here, this jail, I'm, I'm going to do all these other crimes. Exactly. Just so you know. <laughs> now, some of the inmates that ha- were quoted in the book that I was reading about this said that they didn't take him seriously. They thought he was all talk and he just seemed to be like an exaggerator, like a shit talker. Right. right? So he wasn't. Now, <laughs> he would show photos of the bunker to his cellmate and told him that it was hidden out in the woods and the bunker would have a hidden torture room rigged with cameras. Lake called their plans for this bunker Operation Miranda, and this was named after the victim and one of the main characters in his favorite book, The Collector. Wow. Lake had fantasized about Operation Miranda for years, and in a video journal entry, he describes exactly what this is. Now, Mm. 
For anyone that is familiar with this case, you will have probably seen this video or at least heard the audio. But if you haven't, I'm going to play it for you now. I've oh, edited God, it. I've edited it down because it is quite long and it's rambling and it's stupid. I'm going to play you just a few parts of it right now just to get the gist of what he's talking about so he okay. can kind of explain it in his own words. Yikes. Monday on October 22nd, 23rd, something like that. Very close to my 38th birthday. And I'm starting this tape without script or without any real organization of what I want to say. But I do feel a need to explain. This tape, what you're hearing now, is going to be the lead-in of the various phases of construction of a building, which hopefully will be the first of a series of underground buildings. The building will be multi-purpose. It will serve as a tool room and a storage room for a lot of valuables and miscellaneous stuff that are useful to have, but particularly um, items of immediate use that should be in the house. But the main emphasis of the building, the whole justification for its expense and its effort will be a hidden portion of it, a secret room, if we can call it that, that will house a cell. This is the word that I've used in my discussions of this subject. A jail cell, if you will. And the purpose of that cell and the main purpose, hence, of the building will be the imprisonment of the young lady who probably at this moment is unknown to me. And I'm still very much attracted to a particular type of woman who almost by definition is totally uninterested in me. Dirty old man, pervert. I'm attracted to young women, sometimes even as young as 12. Although, mm. to be fair, certainly 18 to 22 is a pretty much ideal range as far as my interests go. I enjoy using women, and of course women aren't particularly interested in being used. I certainly enjoy sex, I certainly enjoy the dominance of climbing on a woman and using her body. What I want is an off-the-shelf sex partner. I want to be able to use a woman whenever and however I want. And when I'm tired or satiated or bored or not interested, I simply want to put her away, lock her up in a little room, get her out of my sight, out of my life, and thus avoid what heretofore has always been the obligation to entertain or amuse or satisfy a particular woman or girlfriend's whims of emotional whatever. Such an arrangement, of course, is not only blatantly sexist, but uh, highly illegal, there's no doubt about it. It uh, violates all of the human rights and blah, 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 blah. And... Anyways, <laughs> he oh rambles God. on. I edited that down quite a bit. Um, if you've seen the original uh, footage of that, he rambles on. It's very incel of him. I will very. say that. Um, yeah, he's gross. I'm... He's a pig. So. I didn't know I could hate someone based on their voice alone. I know. But hence, here we are. But hence to four, you Bro. do. 
Like, oh God, I cannot. And like just the thought of I'm going to ruin someone's life because I want to be able to put them away. And when I'm bored, I want to fuck you up. Like I want to beat his ass for just thinking that that he can do that. Like fuck you. Oh, I'm so angry right now. <laughs> now, for anyone that is familiar with this case, you will know that it's very easy to find footage of the victims as well that they took in the bunker. I will not be using that footage, any of that audio um, in this. I might use quotes from the videos just to highlight the cruelty of what happens. I've seen the videos. They're not graphic by any stretch, nothing like that. But it is a lot because you know what's going to happen. So I I just want to put that out there that I will not be using that because I don't think it's necessary um, for the purposes of what we're doing here during this year this series of episodes so um but i did want to share that piece of leonard lake talking because he does he sounds the actual what i called that file when i Mm. edited it and downloaded it and all of that i named it leonard the douche canoe so yeah (laughs) yeah um that's accurate yeah from now on he is known as leonard the douche canoe with his sidekick charlie god damn i hate charlie ang as well so um, but that's where I'm going to leave you guys today. And next oh. week, we are going to talk more about the Miranda Project. And I want to talk more about the victims involved in this case and who they were. Um, like I always say, they are the most important people in our cases. And um, we've covered those guys. We know their life. We know where they came from. They're pieces of shit. But I want to talk about those, the people that are most important here um, next week. And then, like I said, the week after that, we're going to talk about how they all get fucked not the okay. victims the bad people <laughs> the, the the court process the yes. trial <laughs> exactly Good. but yeah that's all we got for you today wow. so i hope you enjoyed that first part of charles ing and leonard lake the miranda project if you want to follow us on instagram you can do that at story crime pod and if you want to i don't know send me an email or something I guess you can do that at storycrimepod at gmail.com. Yeah. And or slide into the DMs. So yeah, slide into our DMs. Send us something yeah. nasty. No, no dick pics, though. <laughs> no. That's, that's not it. <laughs> that's not the vibe. Other kind of, other, something else nasty. I don't know. Um, also, I want to give a big shout out to our friend at Coffee and Crime, Lisa Marie. Thank you so much for your shout out to us. We love you so much. Everybody go and listen to Coffee and Crime. She, Lisa Marie gives you such great coverage of her stories that she that she in deep dives into her cases. She's awesome. I listen to her all the Yay. time. So um thank you so much for that. Uh thank and you. Yeah. Guys, tune in next week for part two of the Leonard Lake and Charles Zing saga. And hopefully it'll be three parts. It could be four. I don't know. We'll let you know then. All right. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next Thanks time. Thanks for listening for a whole year. Woo! Bye, Bye. everyone.